This is Safe Space Radio, the show about the subjects we would struggle with less if we talked about them more. This season, we're revisiting some of our best shows from the past eight years of Safe Space Radio. Today, we'll hear my 2008 conversation with Neil McKenty, who was a popular talk radio host in Montreal in the 80s, who I listened to when I was growing up. Neil wrote five books, including his memoir, The Inside Story, The Journey of a Former Jesuit Priest and Talk Show Host Toward Self-Discovery, which is the book that we focused on during this interview. As a public figure talking about his own struggle with depression and alcoholism, he was really ahead of his time. I'm so happy to share this interview with you again today. It was my fourth interview ever on the air. And although I feel a little self-conscious about how green I sound, I'm still so touched by his honest and open description of how depression felt and what helped him emerge from it. Here's my 2008 interview with broadcaster and author Neil McKenty. Welcome, Neil. Thank you, Anne. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, I'm delighted that you're here. I want to start by asking you, what is it about depression that makes it so hard to talk about or to tell people about? Well, I think one of the things that makes it most hard is that uh, depression indicates that the persona that you've built or the, um, the front that you've spent so long constructing is beginning to crack and disintegrate. And uh, you really can't afford to let people see this going on. So the only thing you can do is withdraw and pull down the blinds and pull the covers over your head and, um, you know, stay away from from people. So when you say you can't afford to have people see it, why not? Well, I think uh, one might say that um, we're kind of split uh, one w- in one way, that uh, we, we um, don't want people to see us the way we see ourselves, that we're not uh, happy with ourselves, we don't like ourselves, and uh, we want people to see us differently. And that's why we spend uh, so many often laborious years constructing a front, Mm -hmm. Uh, usually a front uh, with the smooth surface of success. And, and, you know, that you, not only are you not in trouble internally, which you realize you are, but, but you've got everything covered. You're, 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 you're a success. I see. So you're saying that depression is when the split between that front, that sort of false persona of success, mm-hmm. and the inner reality, which is a, a place of feeling really like something's not right about yourself. That split begins to to crumble or to to crack to the point it can't be sustained anymore. That's right, and uh, and you, so far as uh, you are aware, from your background, your home, your parents, your religion, you you can't afford to uh, let people see you the way you really are. Uh huh. Because once when you did, it went badly, or before your experiences that when people saw your humanness, your flawedness. They punished you for it or couldn't accept it? I don't know that they punished me for it. Uh, I was so invested in uh, developing this uh, front of success Mm -hmm. 
that I don't think that until the Depression started to eat away at it, I don't think that I was um, ever challenged. What do you mean challenged? Well, I mean, nobody came up to said to me, you know, McKenty, you're a fraud. You're a phony. I see. So nobody saw through it. Nobody saw through it. Uh-huh. It worked pretty well, as a matter of fact, for a long time. Yes, and yet I imagine, this is coming from my training in psychiatry, that in some way you must have learned about the necessity of that front, that it was really you were really only okay if you were so successful. It wasn't okay to be flawed somehow. No, it wasn't okay. It was not okay to be vulnerable, and therefore you have to try to be invulnerable. Yeah. And that, I'll tell you, is a very lonely road. Yeah, tell me about that. Well, I I paid a a price for that long before the Depression through insomnia. Hmm. And uh, the energy that it takes to build that kind of a front 24-7 is a great deal of effort and energy. And um, in order to compensate for that, well, not compensate is not the right word, I I began... um, chronic insomnia lasted for years and years and I still suffered to, uh, from it to some extent although it's uh, it's a good deal more manageable and then in order to get some relief from this um, this construct which was phony mm-hmm. um, I began to drink mm-hmm. and uh, I got into chronic and uh, problem drinking yeah but but I got some relief from the uh, when I was drinking. I mean, there were periods when I I got away from the front and I was spontaneous and etc. I see. So for brief periods under the influence of alcohol, yep. you felt like you were able to be more real. Yes. Aha! Uh-huh. So no wonder alcohol came to be very powerful. Yes, for you. it did. Yeah. So I want to come back to something you said before about the loneliness and how being so invulnerable. So identified with your persona, right? Made you feel so lonely. Can you tell me more about that? Well, um, I think uh, alcoholics have um, recovering alcoholics have, have a phrase that they use in their talks that they felt less than, mm. less than other people. Now, what I was aware of from the beginning. I mean, it started very early. I was different, and I was different in the sense that I was less than, mm-hmm. that other people were more popular, other people had more uh, uh, intelligent parents, other people were more successful, and and I was uh, the odd ball out, and uh, out there where you're you're not in any kind of solidarity, you're not really developing a, a lot of friends. Then the stand you take is, well, if I'm different than those people, I'll be better. Mm-hmm. And I'll show them. I'll be better than they are. And then you start the whole business of uh, education and degrees and uh, people saying, what a fine young man this is. I see. And you're ready to spit. I see. So in a way, what you're saying is that what fueled your... Your achievement, maybe even your overachievement, was actually a deeper fear that you were less than. That's right. Uh huh. I, I can. That makes a lot of sense. 
Um, now, when you look back on it, do you feel like that wasn't true, that that was just a belief you had about yourself? That what exactly wasn't true? That you were so different from other people. No, I, I think uh, that I was not that different. I think there were all kinds of lonely people walking around, um, many of them with uh, invested in their fronts. Yes. Now, there were other people, people that I admired enormously then and look back and admire now, who had a spontaneity, a gregariousness, mm -hmm. and a, a, a sort of, uh, to use a lot of jargon, a real connection with their inner child. Mm -hmm. uh, there were th these people, and they were naturals. Yes, and that you found that appealing. Uh, very appealing, very appealing. Yes, and it sounds like you were very aware of not being that. That's yourself. right. So, Neil, I want to ask you more about what it's like to be depressed. When you're depressed, tell me about that experience. Well, I think one of the words that may describe it best is paralysis. You are simply paralyzed in the sense that, uh, for example, you, you do not want to get out of bed in the morning. You, you have nothing to get out of the bed in the morning for. You have no real interest in people, including your wife. Mm. And I was uh, had been happily married and was deeply in love with Catherine. Uh, but the, there's nothing that engages your attention. Uh, I think it's been best described um, by William Styron in his wonderful book on depression, Darkness Visible. You're in a black hole and you're immobile. And and it's a very frightening space. I can imagine. In your book, The Inside Story, you, you characterize it as to do with darkness and also hopelessness. Yeah. yeah. And uh, that leads me to the, to the subject of suicide, which is on the minds of so many people who suffer from depression. And I wonder if you could tell us your story of how you thought about suicide, how close you came, and, and ultimately what, what saved you from it. Well, I thought about it a lot. I thought that my life had been useless and uh, that there was absolutely nothing to look forward to. And I was in this uh, black hole, pretty much immobile. Um, and I, th I thought about various ways, using pills, using a gun, uh, jumping in front of a, a, a metro train in Montreal. We had a metro station fairly close to us. And one day, uh, Catherine was away doing some work somewhere. I actually uh, left a note for her. Uh, I think I've forgotten now exactly what it said. That I think r roughly that she would be better off without me. Mm. And, uh, and uh, that was a strong feeling that uh, she would be. Better you really off. believed that? Yes, at I the did. Time. Mm -hmm. uh, then in the state I was in. And so I, I, I walked to the metro station, and uh, there's a paradox here a bit. It was a cold, blustery, snowy March day. And the, the walk, in a sense, uh, I think helped me immeasurably. The, the very physical activity in the cold air was, in some paradoxical sense, bracing. Mm. And uh, I went down to the railroad, to the metro station. I sat there and stood there for a while, but I did not jump, and I went home. Mm. And I can't emphasize too much, uh, Anne, that um, 
any kind of physical exercise, which of course a depressed person feels uh, useless about, any kind of physical exercise will give you a leg up. Yes. And there's a little uh, story here. I was still doing radio part-time, and during the period of my worst depression, I had to go to the station every afternoon to get it, to involve myself in a discussion program about politics, particularly, and I hated that going. I, 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 but I was committed to it, so I went, and I think that was one of my salvations. Mm. The fact that I got out from under the covers, Catherine encouraged me. She encouraged me to walk if I could, and did that every day was of an immense benefit. So you had somewhere to be mm-hmm. and people who were expecting you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can imagine just the structure of that. And some exercise was involved. Yes. You had to do some walking. You had to get dressed. That was a godsend. So I would like to shift now to hearing about what were the things that ultimately helped you. I know from your book that you were depressed for about two years, including a hospitalization, medications. Shock treatments. Yeah. So what finally made the difference? Well, of course, those uh, the, the medical interventions, uh, as I look back, uh, were very helpful. I mean, I'm not sure I would have survived without them. But the person that made the difference in the end was not a medical person. Um, I think it was shortly after um, that trip to the Metro to contemplate suicide that I told you about earlier. I think, um, Anne, that... Uh, I got in touch with a friend of mine. I had supper with him. I told him, and I, I did uh, to, even to tell him, what was a, com- a completely step forward. Yes. Because I accepted my vulnerability. I, as I said to Catherine one time, as we were waking up in the morning, I said, "I don't know what to do." I, I, well, of course, my, my front was, I always knew what to do. Right. And by the way, if you know all the answers and if you always know what to do, you're not going to have many friends. Mm. Not going to have many friends. Anyway, I talked to this guy. I said, I don't know what to do. I need help. I'm in a lot of trouble. And he said, I know the guy that I think can help you. And we got into his car and we drove a few blocks and we walked up... Uh, two flights of stairs to this guy's apartment. And it was uh, a friend that I had met before, briefly. His name was Jim. And I told Jim in the kitchen table what I had told my friend at over supper. And, and he started talking about uh, treatment centers. And I banged my fist on the table and I said, I've got no time to do, worry about treatment centers. I need help right now. Mm. And Jim said, well, what Jim did, he banged his fist on the table. And he said, all right, here's what you're going to do. And he outlined a program just like that. I was to come to his place every night at 7 o'clock and to, and to walk there, not ride. So I, he I, knew about physical exercise. He, he knew about that. Uh, I was to uh, write out a program the night before of all my activities the next day. I was to do a certain amount of reading particularly about addiction. I was to listen to tapes with him. Well, we, we did this for about uh, two or three months, 
Every would, night. Every night. Well, he, he said I, uh, the, it was six nights a week. He said I'd take one night off. And uh, Did you pay Jim, him for this? Sorry, Ann? Did you pay him for this? No, he wouldn't take a nickel. Wow, so I, he gave I, of himself yes, he, Oh, yes, he did. Oh, yes, he did. And uh, mm. he, he is a giver. Mm. He, he's a wonderful man with great uh, perspicacity. <laughs> uh, he knows people. Uh, mm. he, he knows addictive personalities. And he's wonderfully supportive. You felt understood by I him. I felt understood. I felt he knew what he was doing. Yes. So you could kind of relax yep. and trust him. Yep. Uh-huh. In the book, you write about uh, three things that really helped you. The exercise, the medical treatment, and this relationship with mm. him, which led to a kind of spiritual awakening, if that's the right word for it. I wondered if you might tell us how important that was for you and how that affected the Depression. Well, I, I'm not sure now what I wrote about the spiritual awakening, <laughs> but in any event, I, I just started to feel more authentic. Uh -huh. I, I started to feel, uh, to me, spirituality, the essence of spirituality is relationships. Uh, the relationship you have with yourself, the relationship you have with other people, and the relationship you had with God. I should say about uh, organized religion here, that I was brought up an Irish Catholic in a rigid home and, and in a rigid parish. And um, religion, Irish Catholicism religion, as it was presented to me, was not a nourishing, uh, what would we say? Uh, well, it, it did not nourish me. Yes. I should say, too, that I, I know you were a Jesuit priest for mm -hmm. many years. I was. Left the priesthood. And you said in your book at one time that you felt that it was impossible to have spiritual growth without emotional growth. And I wonder if that's part of what you're saying, that emotionally it was not nourishing for you, and therefore you are, um, spiritually you stayed stuck at a certain place. Stunted. Yes. Yeah, I think that's true. I, I think, uh, and what Jim did to some considerable degree uh, was open the sluiceways to emotional growth. Mm. It, because... If you're exactly as you as you've said, Anne, if you're trying to uh, grow spiritually and you're stunted emotionally, you're only in more conflict. Mm -hmm. Yes, the two foster each yeah. other. And and I started to feel that uh, I was more real. And boy, what a liberating experience mm -hmm. that was! I was more real. And therefore, I was more comfortable all around, all around. So give me an example of that. What does that mean for you? When you said I was more real, how did you feel that? Well, what I felt was that I no longer needed to expend all this energy on a false front. Uh -huh. that, that I was more spontaneous. I was more like that little kid. Uh -huh. More playful. More playful. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was not very playful, and I didn't... Uh, I didn't smile that much. I'm not sure I smile that much now, but I, but I, I, I started to. Uh, be, I think the word that appeals to me is spontaneous. Yes, you became one of those people you so admired. From yes, before. I did to some extent. Yes, you write about the transition from feeling depressed and essentially kind of self-loathing to to starting to like yourself. Yeah. And uh, I was. That's a that's a big jump. It's a huge jump, and I really want to ask you about it because so many people 
don't like themselves. So many people feel great pain about who they are. And I wondered, what helped you begin to like yourself? Well, I think the, the, it's a process. Mm. It's, it's, it's not, there's no silver bullet. It's a process, and it can be quite a long process. And I think the key person here was Jim. Yes. Because if Jim started to like me, and if Jim uh, felt confidence in me, then there there must be something right with me. Yes. You know, I, th- I, I hear the word worthless so much in my work, yeah. people feeling worthless. And it strikes me that here was this man who was willing for free yeah. to spend six nights a week with you. Yeah. He clearly saw in you something of great worth yes, that he, he was did. willing to invest in. Mm-hmm. So that really started to help you believe that about yourself. Yes, and I see him once or twice a week. I have lunch with him. And if I get on my high horse, he certainly pulls me down fast. Oh, now that's interesting. So he likes you, but he pulls you down for oh, being on yes. your high he, horse. He thinks I'm still rather pompous, <laughs> and he still thinks that I'm basically kind of lazy. And, uh, he, and he no, tells you to your and face. He has no trouble. He has no trouble reminding me of this. Uh-huh. But it's not in any. Uh, it, it's 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 playful. Yes, it's and from someone who you really trust yes, cares right. about you. Yeah. I want to ask you now about uh, your decision to go public. I know that you are a public figure in Montreal, having been on the radio there for many years and on television. Mm-hmm. And you wrote a book where you essentially became very real. And I wanted to know, what were your fears in really letting people know about this? There were, there were some fears, but I didn't give them a great deal of credence. I guess maybe I even said to myself that uh, this was also part of my journey, that Mm. book. This was also part of the process. And if I could let all this stuff hang out in the book, which I did. Yes. And, of course, if I I hadn't let it all hung out, then the book would have been phony. Right, exactly. So it was was part of the ongoing process of being more and more real. Yeah. I think so. Yes. And, and and the fact is, of course, nobody came up to me and said, gee, what a fraud you are. I never thought you would like that. You had a drinking problem. You had the... They came up to me and said, my God, thank you. Mm. What were they thanking you for? They were thanking me for articulating, I think, many of their own fears. Yes. I, I think a lot of people, Anne, and, and you must know this yourself, uh, they have this split about they don't want people to see the way they feel about themselves. They want to be perceived differently. Yes. And that split, is, I think, is is endemic. Yes, and, and exhausting and loneliness-inducing oh. and miserable. Miserable. Yes. Are you ever afraid that the depression will return? Uh, not really. Uh, could it return? Well, if it did, I, I have more tools now to deal with it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, of course, it could return, and I'm a bit on guard. Mm-hmm. I, I don't fool around. Do you take medication for yes, it Yes, I now? do, yeah. Uh-huh. Do you have confidence that that helps? I'm not sure it helps. I, I take Effexor mm-hmm. uh, on a daily basis, um, a, a mild dosage, I think. Whether it helps or not, my, uh, my psychiatrist has prescribed it, and I, fo- I follow along. I see. Okay. So we are going to close, Neil. I want to thank you so much. It's, it's been, been a pleasure, such an honor. And it's an honor for me, too. On a personal note, I want to say that I grew up hearing Neil McKenty on the radio, and it is 
really a treasure for me to have you on my show today, Neil. Thanks, Anne. I haven't re-listened to this interview in at least five years. And the thing that struck me the most hearing it now was the part about how not sharing vulnerability is related to loneliness and how he felt so much pressure to put up this false front of success that was so smooth and so on and not reveal his vulnerability to anybody and how much that contributed to how lonely he felt. Something about the way he said it was just so clear and direct. Invulnerability leads to loneliness. I think what struck me is that so much of this show is based on the idea that when you come forward with your vulnerability, when you share a story about depression or alcoholism or any number of stigmatized subjects, I've been focused on that as an act of generosity and courage. I've been thinking of it as an act of social change because it enables other people who are hiding in their closets to realize, oh, I'm not alone, and for them to come forward and sort of the liberating effect it has on the listener. And Neil reminded me about the liberating effect it has on the teller, that it isn't only an act of generosity for other people. It's that when we make ourselves vulnerable, that's what allows other people in and makes them feel safe with us and makes them feel like we're authentic and genuine. When I reveal my vulnerability to someone, Almost invariably, the response is they come closer to me. Sometimes they'll, like, touch my hand. Sometimes they'll laugh. Sometimes they'll cry. It'll be just like, oh, me too, or oh, my God, yes, I know, or suddenly we'll connect in another way, and it's like we've become real to each other. And I realize how satisfying that is for me. The more I reveal my vulnerability, the less lonely I feel, the more connected I feel. And Neil really reminded me of that, and it was wonderful to hear. I want to end the show, as we always do, with resources. I want to remind you of the book that Neil recommended, which is William Styron's book, Darkness Visible. I remember reading that during my psychiatry residency training. I still remember, to this day, actually, what it felt like to read that book. It was sort of electrifying, because his description of depression brought me to this the depths of it in a way that nothing had brought me before, and it changed how I understood what it is really like to suffer with depression. Wherever you live, if you Google how to find a depression support group, there are national organizations that will help you find local depression support groups wherever you are. And lastly, if you're here in Portland, Maine, and you are looking for help, or if you need to talk to someone immediately, the local hotline is 774-HELP, and that's 774 4357. If you like this show and want to hear more about the subjects we hide, visit our website at safespaceradio.com. While you're there, you can subscribe to our email list to find out about each week's new show as soon as it's released. Also, please leave us a comment. I love hearing from you. My thanks to Gabe Graben for producing the show and to Jim Russell for being